Well, let's just take a moment uh, and invite the Lord. Heavenly Father, we know that Thou art already here, but we ask, O oh, Heavenly Father, that Thou would be with us, give us hearts of understanding, hearts that are willing to learn, and more so and mostly hearts that are, that are obedient unto Thee. And for, O oh, oh, Heavenly Father, we know that in obedience we can love Thee as Thou did love us. And so we're, we ask, O oh, Heavenly Father, that Thou would be, that Thy Spirit might be amongst us, and that we would know that Thou art with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so I'm going to, uh, unfortunately with technology, my notes are on the computer, and the computer is stuck over there. So for the most part, it's not really important that you see me anyways. I'll be sitting over here somewhere, and you'll see slides coming up and, and be able to read them with me, and, and we'll kind of walk you through uh, this presentation. But let's finish the story. So I had a brother that wouldn't shake my hand uh, years ago and um, I knew there was a problem. I didn't understand what to do with it, though, you know. What do you do when somebody refuses to shake your hand in church? Um, didn't know what to do with that. And I was relatively young in the faith at the time, and I, I, I said, well, he's got a problem, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm searching my memory bank, and I'm trying to go, well, you know, what did I do? Did I do something to, 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 uh, to hurt this person or... What, what happened? I just don't understand. It was a brother I admired, and I didn't quite understand that. So I, uh, I, I did what we all do. Let it go. <laughs> I just let it go. You know, just, okay, you don't want to shake my hand? We're in a, don't want to shake my hand? We're in a big church. Uh, we'll just not shake hands. You know? And that's what I did. And it went on. And I, I'm ashamed, actually, to admit, admit it. For almost six months, uh, we just didn't shake hands. <laughs> and uh, that's what happened. Well, it came to a time when we had communion in our church. And just before communion, this older brother approaches me with tears in his eyes. And he talks to me about forgiveness. And I try to, I try to, well, yeah, what, what, what is the problem? What's the problem that we're having? And he says, well, somebody told me that you said this about me. And I went, I didn't say that about you. I'd never say that about you. And with that, it was over. We both shed tears and we both Forgave, her, forgave each other. And that is important. I want to tell you why that's important. Because you see, I sinned. Not the brother. I did. And you know what? We need to take responsibility because there's a dual action there. That we need to recognize that when I have something against you or you against me, what's the Bible says? Go to your brother. And with that... We'll start our presentation. I'll be over here. <laughs> Don't worry about it. When I duck down behind the screen, we're coming to an important part. <laughs> okay. As the Apostle Paul said in, I'm going to have to let my brother know that we're going to click. So I don't know. Is that the signal? Okay. Oh, so we're on to the next thing. I don't I have to, I don't have to look up there because I don't have it in my slide. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void to offense towards God and towards men. Are we like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Corinthians much like his conviction above where he said this? Or do we just dismiss its importance in our relationship with others around us? We should not. Offense can lead to bitterness and hatred. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John states in 1 John 3.15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we allow it to go this far without repentance... Offense can have eternal consequences. 
It is serious business. So serious is the subject that Jesus in Matthew 18, 18, 7 pronounces a solemn woe to the world because of offenses. And woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Yet curiously in the same verse Jesus also pronounces that for it needs be to be that offenses come. Offense, offenses, offend, offended, and offender appear a total of 73 times in the Bible. Several writers as well as Jesus gave the subject of offense close scrutiny. Interestingly, the five English forms of offense are translated from a total of 24 different words in both Testaments. Twelve are from Hebrew and twelve are from Greek. However, most of these are merely different forms of the same words. They are either a different part of speech or a different gender. However, a common thread runs through their usages in that they all refer to the cause or stimulus of evil conduct or to the evil action itself. Jesus Christ was accused of being an offender and was offended, and it happened to, if it happened to him, it is very likely we will encounter offenses in our Christian walk, and possibly within your own family circles. Everybody, every single person who has ever lived on earth has been offended. Not once, but many times, and in some cases, many, many times. If we think back on the times we've been hurt, that may trigger your memory about the offense you have felt at the time. You may have felt it this way. Sometimes we may view it as an offense, as being a slight. At other times, we may, we may be offended and carry resentment or grudges against another for long periods of time or for the rest of our lives. Some people hardly seem to notice an offense. That would be me. Possibly because they do not understand its ramifications. Yet others seem to be able to bear the meanest of personal attacks. Though undoubtedly very hurt, they quickly recover and can continue without resentment towards the offender. We usually use the word offense in the sense of feeling displeasure. Our displeasure may range from merely being piqued all the way to feeling deep resentment and indignation. Jesus says it needs to be that offenses come. How do they come? Offenses usually occur when someone says something to us too harshly, or at least we interpret it that way. It can and does occur when we perceive that we have been ignored, overlooked, or given a responsibility we do not want. Or we, be, we become offended when we are blamed for something we did not do. Or on the other hand, when we do not receive credit for what we did do. We may be offended, I'm sorry, we may be offended when someone has been inconsiderate or thoughtless or has used us for their own purposes. The ways to become offended are myriad. While all these things may, be indeed, may, things may indeed be contained within the scope of biblical offense, they fall far short of the much stronger usage by Jesus and the apostles. In most cases, their usage of the term offense implies that a person's salvation may be at stake. Most of the slights that we interpret as offenses are far from putting salvation at stake or at risk. Uh, an offense can certainly endanger our salvation, although that depends on how we react to the perceived offense. Understanding the word offense as used in the Bible begins with an examination of the words used to describe the offense. Perhaps the most descriptive and easily understood of the Greek words are scandalon, a noun, and its future tense verb, scandalizo. Our words scandal and scandalize come directly from these Greek words. Scandalon is used by Jesus three times in the passage of Matthew 18.7. Scandalon is used in the context that it is the trigger of a trap on which bait is placed. When an animal touches the trigger to eat the bait, the trap springs shut and the animal is caught. When used in the moral context, scandalon indicates the enticement to conduct, which will ruin the person that is being enticed. Remember the trigger of bait given to Eve? You shall not surely die. And secondly, secondly the promise or lie, 
But God knows that when you shall eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Obviously, the context in Matthew 18, 7 is moral. Jesus' concern is a sin of being the temptation or enticement that causes others to sin. He does not stipulate whether one is, indirect, is the direct cause through persuasion or flaunted worldliness or indirectly through one's manner of life. Hypocrisy may, be, may very well tempt others to sin more than outright atheism. Scandalizo is used in two senses in the Bible. The first usage compares to how we, we, we use offense most commonly today, that is, as, as a slight or as an annoyance. The second is used exactly the same way scandalon is above. When Jesus states in Matthew 17, 27, Notwithstanding, lest we offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast a cast and hook, and took up, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, give unto them for me and thee. In this context, scandalizo, offend, is used in the sense of vex, annoy, or trouble. When Jesus says, But whosoever shall offend the, one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into, the, into life maimed, halted or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thine eyes offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Or in Romans, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Scandalizo is not used in this way, but as a cause of stumbling, leading one astray, or even an occasion of sinning. In other words, it can mean the stumbling block itself. A number of times the Apostle Paul used two other words, which meant basically the same as above. The first word, first is proskama, meaning a cause of falling, stumbling block, or an occasion of sinning. The second word, proskopi, means an offense, or the act of offending. At this point, we can clearly see when the Bible speaks of offense, it refers primarily to the, some act or series of acts which lead another into sin. I want to say that again. When the Bible speaks of offense, it refers primarily to some act or series of acts which lead another into sin. Offenses are generally not hurt feelings, resentment, and anger that builds as minor irritations and annoyances. We ought to be able to deal with these. However, irritations and annoyance have the unfortunate inclination to build into far worse bitterness and grudges, which are sins that a person has allowed himself to be led into, in many cases, by his own devious mind. When Jesus answers his disciples' question about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he speaks about being converted and becoming as little children as a condition to entering the kingdom. And further states that those who humble themselves as a little child shall be the greatest in the kingdom. However, it is important to note that he adds that whoever offends these little ones to sin, it would be better off being weighted down and thrown to his death into the sea. In other words, it would be better for him to die before committing such a sin. Christ regards injuring or causing a weak Christian to sin as a very serious offense, as noted in Romans 14, 19 through 23. Children are trusting by nature. They trust, one, they trust adults, and through that trust, their capacity to trust God grows. Parents and other adults who influence young children are held accountable by God for how they affect these little ones' ability to trust. Jesus warned that, that anyone who turns little children away from faith will, will receive severe punishment. We are all humans, so offenses will happen, but our Savior pronounces woe on the person who offends and causes others to sin. We ought not to become stumbling blocks to other believers, so we must remove stumbling blocks 
that cause us to sin. Jesus goes on to say that we must eliminate the offensive thing, and he likens the offensive things to parts of our body, our hand, our foot, our eyes. This does not mean to cut off part of our body. It means that our person, that any person, program or teaching in the church that threatens the spiritual growth of the body must be removed. Jesus says that it would be better to go to heaven with one hand than to hell with both. Sin, of course, affects more than our hands. It affects our hearts and minds. And we must understand that sin is not a private matter. Jesus warned the disciples about three ways to cause the little ones to lose faith. Tempting them, as illustrated in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, neglecting or demeaning them, teaching false doctrine to them. Jesus, has, Jesus states in Matthew 18, 10b, that in heaven their agents do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. Jesus has assigned angels to watch over children, and they have direct access to God. How do we treat those who, direct, who have direct access to God? Do we allow them to approach us easily in spite of our busy schedules, or we take them lightly, ignore them, or cast them away? Is this the same approach we take with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Offense is a serious thing. Allowing irritation to develop into resentful anger has its roots in a dangerous duel. Not enough love and too much pride. We become irritated when our vanity is hurt. We say, you can't do that to me. When we react to rudeness or thoughtfulness, vanity and pride is almost certain to be involved. Matthew 20, 20 to 26 records the occasion when the mother of James and John asked Jesus for special consideration for her sons. When the others heard of it, they were indignant and angry. Why? Their vanity was pricked because they wished for special consideration too. Their proud minds had pictures themselves of being worthy of being served, and they were offended because they thought their opportunity might be slipping away. Jesus reminded them, even to be in the kingdom required the humble attitude of a servant. Unlike love, pride is touchy and fretful. When pride feels threatened, it broods against what it perceives to be hurting it or lessening its chances of being on top, coming out ahead, looking good, or getting even. So it competes against others. It looks for ways to elevate itself or put another down. It counts all the offenses, real or imagined, and puts them into a mental account book to justify its position until it finds an opportune moment to break out in vindication of itself. Love does not do any of those things. The verses as written in the love chapter of Corinthians says, and we're quoting only one, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Other interpretations or translations of this verse suggest that love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is never selfish. Love is never quick to take offense. I'm going to repeat that. Love is never quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs, does not act unbecomingly, is not self-seeking. It takes no account of the evil done. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Love does not insist on its own way. It will not even become provoked in the first place. 1 Corinthians 13.5 does not deny the fact that offenses will come, just as Jesus said they would in Matthew 18 and Luke 17. They will range from hurt feelings, giving rise to mild animosity, to direct powerful temptations to sin, through a flaming temper bent on getting even. Yet we can overcome all of them, because love is not provoked or exasperated. There will, be no temp- there will be temptations to sin, and all of us will offend others from time to time, even un- un- unintentionally. But God expects his children to have godly love to override the offenses when they come. And Jesus Christ expects you to forgive them when they come. How do we know this? Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to utter these words, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Or as we commonly say today, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Why did Jesus give, his, give this word in his model prayer? 
He did it to motivate us to forgive everyone, always, especially those who have been endowed with the Holy Spirit. Will you receive the reward for the work you have built on in this life? Jesus says it recorded in Luke 17, 1-4. Then he said unto his disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstake were hanged about his neck and be cast into the sea, than that, that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Remember, it is out of God's great love for his children that he has forgiven us. And it is that example of love that he commands us to forgive those that trespass against us. If this point needed to be expanded on Peter, uh, expanded on, Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. The rabbis taught that people should forgive those who offend them three times. Peter, trying to be especially generous, asked Jesus if seven, the perfect number, was enough times to forgive someone who sinned against him. But Jesus answered 70 times 7, the number of eternity, meaning that we shouldn't even keep count of how many times we forgive someone who sins against us. We should always forgive those who are truly repentant, no matter how many times they ask. Because God has forgiven us all our sins, we should not withhold forgiveness from others. Realizing how completely God through Christ has forgiven us should produce a free and generous attitude of forgiveness towards others. This is further evidenced by Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant who received pardon for his debts from his king only to show ruthless unkindness towards those who were indebted to him. We know the outcome and the warning. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you, ye from your hearts forgive not every one, every one, it should be, his brothers their trespasses. This, we don't forgive others, we are setting ourselves above Christ's law. And I'm going to read that again. When we don't forgive others, we are setting ourselves above Christ's law of love. This may be considered a sin. So we can safely say, when love dominates a person's life, Becoming offended either through hurt feelings or a strong temptation to sin is remote. When pride dominates a person's life, becoming offended either through hurt feelings or a strong temptation to sin is limitless. Let's get into the definition then. The primary definition of offense is taken from the context of Paul's defense. Uh, is to commit a sin, to break a secular or religious law, Offending the law or breaking the law is usually considered both a sin and an offense to the people who wrote and obey the law. The secondary definition of offense is to be personally insulting to someone's tradition, sense of politeness, or cause indignation. Assuming that the speaker or offender was, a, was truthful in his communications or actions, such an offense is not a sin. And that's really important to note. Assuming that the speaker, offender, was truthful in his communications or actions, such an offense is not a sin. The def defini uh, definition of offense is driven by the context, context in which it is used. When Paul was accused by the Jews before Festus on the judgment seat, he said in Acts 28, 8b, Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. He meant that he did not sin against the Roman law or, or against the Mosaic law, and therefore could not offend either the Romans or the Jews. Certainly he offended the politeness of the Jews. He offended their biblical traditions, and he offended their sense of indignation. But he did not commit an offense, a sin, against them. He was blameless. The tertiary definition of offense, and this is what it's come to be, when a person, through his reckless and thoughtless example, entices or emboldens another person to commit a sin, it is said that he has offended the other person. By being such a poor influence on, on another person, the offender has himself sinned along with the offended member. So the third definition of offense is 
by recklessly modeling behavior which another Christian thinks is sinful, regardless of whether it really is or not, the reckless person emboldens another believer to sin against God's law or against their own conscience by mimicking what they observed the reckless person doing. The concept of this definition is given in some detail in 1 Corinthians and Romans 14. Both drive to the same explanation what it means to be an offense to someone else. When an unloving person selfishly makes use of a Christian liberty in public, and by doing so causes someone else to want to sin against their conscience by doing the same thing they observe the careless person doing. When love is the summation of the entire Mosaic law, and love is the motivation behind someone's actions, they will do nothing to harm or destroy their neighbor. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, 8 to 10, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commanded, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And again in in Galatians 5.14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And again in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In this context, the Greek word for fault is paratoma, which means to sidestep, lapse, or deviate, unintentional error, willful transgression, fall, offense, sin, or trespass. So what was this law of Christ? Paul says that love works no ill to his neighbor. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and to bear one another's burdens. And by doing so, this law of love is being met. Christians must obey the law of love, which supersedes both religious and civil laws. How easy is it to excuse our indifference to others merely because we have no legal obligation to help them? It is easy to justify harming them if our actions are technically legal. But Jesus does not have loopholes in the law of love. Whenever love demands it, we are to go beyond human legal requirements and initiate the God of love. Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve, Therefore all things whatsoever you do that men should do to you, do even so to them. For this is the law in the prophets. The Apostle Paul was hugely sensitive to this, to even consider that if by carelessly eating it was to cause another person to stumble and take offense, he and any righteous man would forgo meat. In his letters to the Romans, he speaks about this in Romans 14, 13 to 23. Not going to spend a lot of time reading this entire slide. I'm going to take a moment, pause just a moment, and uh, go ahead and read it. It's a familiar passage to most of us. Both strong and weak Christians can cause their brothers to stumble. The strong but insensitive Christian may flaunt his freedom and intentionally offend others' consciences. The scrupulous but weak Christian may try to fence others in with petty rules and regulation, thus causing dissension. Paul wants his readers to be both strong in the faith and sensitive to others' needs. Since we are all strong in some areas and weak in others, we need to constantly monitor the effects of our behavior on others. Paul distinguishes between freedom to sin and freedom to serve. Paul distinguishes between freedom to sin and freedom to serve. Freedom to sin is no freedom at all because it enslaves you to Satan, others, or your, evil, your own evil desires. The flesh is not a reference to the body, but it's a sinful nature that attempts to use our bodies to lead us into sin. People who are slaves to sin are not free to live righteous lives. Christians, by contrast, 
should not be slaves to sin because they are free to do right and glorify God through their actions. And what are some of those actions? For brethren, we have, you, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Some Christians may use an invisible weaker brother to support their own opinion, prejudices, or standards. You must live by these standards, they say, or you will be offending the weaker brother. In truth, the person may, would often be offending no one but the speaker. While Paul urges us to be sensitive to those whose faith may be harmed by our actions, and we should not sacrifice, um, I'm sorry, to be sensitive to those whose faith may be harmed by actions, and we should not sacrifice our liberty in Christ just to satisfy the selfish motives of those who are trying to force their opinion on us. Neither should we fear them nor criticize them who follow Christ, in, but follow Christ in his word as closely as we can. When the Apostle Paul visited Jerusalem to deal with the church leaders about certain aspects of ceremonial law that, w- that was being imposed on the Gentile church in Antioch, it was decided that they would request the church in Antioch to refrain from eating meat that had been sacrificed to, al- to idols. Animals were brought to a temple, killed before an idol or as part of a pagan religious ceremony, then eaten at a feast in a pagan, pagan temple, or taken to the butchers who sold the meat in the marketplace. Some Jewish believers were concerned that by eating such meat, they would be somehow participating in the worship of pagan idols. Although idols were not real, and the pagan ritual of sacrificing to them was meaningless, eating such meat offended some Jewish Christians with more sensitive consciousness. Paul said, therefore, if a weaker or less mature believer misunderstood their actions... Mature believers should, out of consideration, avoid eating meat offered to idols. So Paul accepted this request, not because he felt the practice was wrong in itself, but because this practice would deeply offend Jewish believers, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 8, 1-13. This issue was not worth dividing the church, and his desire was to promote unity. Much like his writing to the Romans, Paul's practice and ours as well, was to honor as much as possible the convictions of other believers. We are called to accept one another without judging our varied opinions. However, when, this, when the situation has to be faced, how should we deal with those who disagree with us? Paul's response was that all believers should act in love so as to maintain peace in the church. Freedom is the mark of our Christian faith. Freedom from sin and guilt and freedom to use and enjoy anything that comes from God. Go to the next slide. Christian freedom does not mean anything goes. Christians should not abuse this freedom and hurt themselves or others. Drinking too much leads to alcoholism. Gluttony leads to obesity. Be careful what God has allowed you to enjoy. Be careful that what God has allowed you to enjoy doesn't grow into a bad habit and controls you and influences others. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in, in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through that thy knowledge shall the, the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest I make my brother to offend. It means that our salvation is not determined by legalism, good works, or rules, but by the free gift of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Christian freedom, then, is inseparably inseparably tied to Christian responsibility. Christian freedom, then, is inseparably tied to Christian responsibility. New believers 
are often very sensitive to what is right and wrong, what they should or shouldn't do. Some action may be perfectly all right to, to us to do, but may, harmful, may be harmful to a Christian brother or sister who is still young in the faith. We must be careful not to offend a sensitive or younger Christian and or, by our example, cause him or her to sin. When we love others, our freedom should be less important to us than strengthening the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. Let me repeat that. Our freedom should be less important to us than strengthening the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. Everything we do affects others, and we have to think of them constantly. God created us to be interdependent, not independent. God created us to be interdependent, not independent. The Apostle Paul advises those who are more mature in faith about how they must care about their brothers and sisters in Christ, who have more tender consciences. Those weaker brothers and sisters are advised concerning their growth. And spiritual leaders are instructed on how to deal with conflicts that easily could arise between these groups. Those who are strong in our faith must, without pride or condescension, treat others with love, patience, and self-restraint, forbearing one another in love. We must try to steer clear of actions forbidden by Scripture, of course. But if Scripture seems to be silent, then we should follow our own conscience. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin, means to go against the conviction, and that will leave a person with a guilty or uneasy conscience. When God shows us that something is wrong for us, we should avoid it. But we should not look down on other Christians who exercise their freedom in those areas. In everything he did, the Apostle Paul always considered what his actions communicated about Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, you are a minister for God. If you are a believer, you are a minister for God. In the course of each day, non-Christians observe you and your behavior. Don't let your careless or undisciplined actions be another person's excuse for rejecting God. If that is the case, how much more does this apply to the family of God? Having said this, God does not call us to walk on eggshells, metaphorically speaking, when living and communicating with with the unsaved or with other believers. Proper interpretation of the scripture makes makes clear both the command and the application behind give no offense. Though such persons may be, be very upset on an emotional level, they need to be more properly instructed as to what being offended really means in the scripture. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is a t- accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. What ministry? Ours, of course. One of the best-known scriptures on the subject, other than the one in Acts, which we started the forum with, is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 32. Offending others. Give no offense. 1 Corinthians 10, 30. Give no offense neither to the Jews nor the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Well, you will note that the apostle is writing to church members advising them not to offend fellow church members. So if Jesus said it is impossible that offenses should come, how should we handle those offenses when they do come? What should we do if a fellow church member offends us? Should we immediately go running to the local uh, minister or elder and demand that the offender be disciplined? No, of course not. We are to use Jesus Christ's four-step plan, which, which, give, which is given to us in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We must know that no matter which side of the fence we are on, whether we are on the offended or the offender, it will not be easy. Be easy. Solomon, in all his wisdom, wrote in Proverbs eighteen nineteen, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. While we may be tempted to pass off this responsibility to others, Jesus commanded his children to use his plan when trespassed against if we follow this process, it will yield its intended result. These are Jesus' guidelines for dealing with those who sinned against us. They are meant for Christians, not believers, sins against you and not others, conflict resolution in the church, in the context of the church, not the community at large. Okay. 
Uh, we must know that Jesus' words are not a license for a frontal attack on every person who hurts or slights us. They are not a license to start a destructive gossip campaign or to call a church trial. They are designed to reconcile those who disagree so that all Christians can live in harmony. When someone wrongs us, we often do the opposite of what Jesus commands. We turn away in hatred or resentment, seek revenge or engage in gossip. By contrast, we should go go to that person first, as difficult as that may be. When error or sin is perceived, it is a Christian's responsibility of love to act. God commands it. He uses words like go, show, rebuke, reprove, restore, confession, contrition, godly sorrow, fruit, which is evidence of repentance, forgive, and reconciliation. These are used in many of the steps that Jesus cited in the process to spiritual reconciliation between believers. We must forgive that person in a true biblical sense as often as he or she needs it. This creates a much better chance of restoring the relationship first to God and then with each other. And there is a caveat to the process that we should not forget before the approach can be made, before we go, before we rebuke, reprove, or restore. When the Holy Spirit points out and or reminds us there is an offense between you and another, Even while in the process of worshiping, you must go, you must stop and go and do all you biblically can to be reconciled to that believer first, then return to worship. And that, brother and sister, illustrates the mistake that I started this forum with, with a story. That's what I should have done. He also imparts a stern warning about a lack of forgiveness. You are to withhold forgiveness. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remembers that thy brother have ought against thee, leave thy, there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and, and then come and offer thy gift. So, uh, and then also, and when we stand praying, forgive, if ye have ought against, against any, that your Father, also which in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your, your trespasses. We're going to quickly go to Matthew 18. Okay? Speak probably to the offender. The Greek word for trespass here is harmantano, which is translated as sin, commit a fault, miss the mark, error, offend, or trespass. It can imply the making of a mistake, and this is important to note. The offense may be the result of an innocent mistake by the offender, or the offended person might be mistaken in feeling offended. The discovery of the mistake or misunderstanding by either party can come out by going to that person first and having a private communication about the situation. Jesus wants us to resolve such simple problems, uh, such problems, sorry, at the simplest possible level, and if at all possible, before taking it to others and before taking it to the church. It must be understood that we must approach this with much prayer, and sometimes, if it is major, we should fast as we draw closer to God for insight and instruction. How can this be done? Don't act in haste. Review and understand entirely the circumstances around the effect. I've got this slide up here, and I've taken it uh, focusing your dispo- from peacemakers.com. There are a number of points, and this is just half the slide. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through each one of them, but it gives you a sense if you're going to be a peacemaker, the kind of work you need to do if you're in this circumstance. The work that you need to do on yourself first before you make any approach, before you deal with anybody else. And that is to really understand what the offense is. So I'm going to give you a few moments to go through that. All right? If you want a copy of the list or this list and you want to take it away with you, uh, we can provide you a copy. Just come see me after this. This is the rest of it. Describe the effects of this dispute on your relationship with God, your family. It, take, it takes time to analyze and to make the discernment of the offense. In light of this offense, of this, pardon me, in light of this focus, do you think we are ready to confront the offender in private and in love? We should be, as we now understand and comprehend fully the offense. We can describe it and all the emotions that go with it, and most of all, give it a biblical reference. 
But if the offender will not discuss the problem in any reasonable manner and remains unapproachable, what if he won't? He does not admit anything and has and has done nothing and, and suggests he's done nothing to offend you. What if he becomes belligerent about the whole matter and adamantly refuses to talk about the matter? That's when you take the next step. Get a second opinion. <laughs> uh, when I used the word getting a second opinion, I was a little bit troubled by that. It's interesting that the writer of Islands and Offenses puts it this way. And I was a bit troubled with it, but upon further examination, I realized how important it was. Getting another opinion implies that you must submit the whole situation to another person who should be a mature member, an expert, if you will, who will not be a gossip monger, whose word would be reliable and res respected by the propagator in any subsequent meeting. However, it is vital that this member be unbiased and understanding, and it, it is equally important that the member agrees that it is an offense or not and may have had experience with offenses in the past. It also implies that you must listen carefully to the advice of the mature member who has been, may have faced a similar offense and can give you proper direction. This is not a step whereby you attempt to get another church member to side with your argument such that you can gang up on the offender or get a large group to confront the offender. It should never be me or him choice given to the third party member that you seek out. Lastly, does it fit the biblical definition of an offense? Or is, it, is it a, or is it a case that my feelings have been hurt and that I have been hurt emotionally about the situation? If that is the case, it would be wise to counsel with the mature member, especially if they too have experienced the same thing. Even if it doesn't fit the true definition of offense, an inter intervention of peacemaking could be sought. The Greek word for witness here is martis. The application and concept of a witness to record, observe what is spoken, testified to, and what is done is combined with the responsibility of a believer to confront, reprove, rebuke, restore the parties as necessary according to Luke 17, 1 Timothy 5, and Galatians 6. Therefore, you have the listen to them, establish what was said or done as the major emphasis of Matthew 18:16. Witnesses also mean eyewitnesses. One that can and or does tell what he has seen or heard firsthand as, as a firsthand observer, as in 1 Timothy 5.20. For further references regarding the process of peacemaking, please go to peacemakers.com or review an article written by Bill Fields entitled Eight Steps to Biblical Forgiveness. It is replete with warnings. The process of a second opinion should not be entered into lightly and requires much spiritual maturity. And if you should neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Intervention, tell it to the church. Jesus uttered these words. He was, was, he was not giving us license to speak publicly to all our church members about the experience you may have experienced and having them line up with you against the offender. This would be divisive and not expedient to a peaceful end to the matter. It is interesting to know that when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, there was no church per se. But he knew that the disciples would become the nucleus of the first and early church. He was very much aware that there were jealousies and disagreements between them while he walked with them. Even after the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, there are examples of disagreements between the apostles in the early church. What was Jesus alluding to in this scripture? It is to the leadership, the church ministry, which the offended person must go in the event that step two failed. They would seek a minister or an elder intervene in the process so that this could be settled and that peace would once again come to, the, come to his church. Should we just skip to, to, to step three? No. The beginning of, is not the appropriate time for the ministry to become involved in the process. We know that saying that there are always two sides to any disagreement, and it is unwise to seek out the involvement of the ministry at the early stage of such a disagreement. It will almost, most, almost always be seen as a threat by the propagator and would almost always inflame the problem. We should also know that the involvement of the ministry is not an absolute guarantee that this will be resolved by them. What should happen if it cannot be resolved, if they, they cannot resolve at the church, that is? Let them be as a heathen man and a publican. There's a consequence. The implication here that Jesus states that the relations between you and this member 
who committed the offense will change if the offender does not heed the advice and leadership of the church. It may involve discipline of the church and the matter brought before the church as a whole. It is If the offender is stubborn enough not to heed the advice of the church, the leadership of the church must take appropriate action regarding the individual members. It is important for all of us to realize that we must be obedient to our living God through Jesus Christ and that he authored this process. It is important that all should realize that if it goes this far, it is truly sinful and you stand in God's judgment. The, the Bible verse that immediately follows this process says in 18, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Ye, whatsoever ye shall bind in earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. The binding and loosing refers to the decision of the church in conflicts. Church decisions must be God-guided based on a discernment of his word. Believers have the responsibility, therefore, to bring their problems to the church, and the church has a responsibility to use God's guidance in seeking to resolve conflicts. Handling problems God's way will have an impact now and for eternity. These matters are serious, and we must be concerned about how we tackle this in light of our church and the love of the brotherhood. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, now we beseech you, brethren, mark them that which cause divisions and, co- and offense contrary to the do- doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them, for they are, are such, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul says that the church leadership is to note those, mark those who cause offenses. Paul instructs the church to name before the church those who cause division or offense. We must be aware that offenses will come, that it is our personal responsibility to resolve them as Jesus commanded us to do. Sometimes in larger churches, we may not feel the need to resolve it as we may be able to avoid or ignore the offenders and gravitate to another set of church friends or members. We must remember that we are all part of the body of Christ, and when a joint or a part of the body is out of sync, it will will disturb the entire body. We must be synced again with all of our brothers and sisters to maintain peace and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. We must strive to get along together and to love another with godly love that is unique to the children of Jesus Christ. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Jesus said that offenses will come, but we can reduce the risk that that they come our way. Some modern translations replace the last phrase with nothing can make them to stumble. Nothing can entice them to sin, nor can the sins of others cause them to fall. The Hebrew word translated love in verse 165 is Ahab, which is frequently used in the Old Testament is found in a wide range of contexts. What this verse is saying is that that the love of God's instruction, by paying attention to and keeping his law, produces peace, which is a wonderful, strong sense of well-being, stability, and confident assurance in what we already have, that the enticement to go another way holds no attraction to us. Herein is the best defense against offense. When we strive to lavish our affections upon God, we show it by submitting to Him. We show our affection by obeying Him, talking to Him, and meditating on what He says to us through His Word. We will strive to discover ways of using his advice in our lives. And we will count on the leading of the Holy Spirit for counsel and guidance throughout, even if these possible offenses come. It should not be our intention to do these things to get blessings from him, even though blessings will come. We do them because we love, admire, respect him. As the Apostle Apostle John said in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. And in Romans 5, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Offenses will surely come, so that we can, blame, so we can become fully mature in our faith. And we are witnesses to these things, repentance and forgiveness of sins. So is as the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Our relationship with God is made possible by Jesus Christ, and enables us to bless, enables Him to bless us by giving us His Spirit. 
God humbles us and gives us his love through the Spirit, giving us the power to override the desires of the flesh to exalt or control itself. It te- he teaches us by his Spirit, even the kingdom of God, showing us what, important, what it is important in relation to his kingdom. He works to build our fruits of the Spirit. With these qualities, we take delight in the things of God and have confidence in him and his word rather than allowing ourselves to become overly influenced and thus pressured by the present condition of our lives. Okay, let's talk. I've done all the talking. We'll move on to you. And this is what I feel more comfortable doing, believe me, uh, walking around and talking to you. Um, A lot of information to digest there. I realize that. Uh, We wanted to try to capture much of it, uh, not only uh, Matthew 18, but uh, what do you think that, why did God allow this to happen to us? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Why did God allow offenses? He said offenses are going to come. Why? Why? Why will they come? He knows we're sinners. We have to deal with sin. Yes? It's a process of humbling ourselves, isn't it? All right? All right? And we don't get too high on ourselves. True. Anything else? Nobody wants to share. Yes? It's a learning process, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? It's a, it's, it's, he takes these things and make them, makes them a learning process for us to become mature believers, to understand the Word of God. Because where should we go when this happens to us? Where's the first place we go? On our knees and right to the Word to understand what we should do in those circumstances. And that's exactly what God wants us to be. That's where he wants us to be continually, daily. He wants us to be on our knees and in the word, daily. So we deal with these situations, and we become mature in our faith. Anybody else? Now, you know, I I thought about this, and I said, you know, I want to get everybody to get up and talk about the offenses that happened to them. Because, I mean, I shared one, so everybody should be able to, to rise and talk about their offenses, but I mean that I know it's a sensitive matter, and we don't always want to talk about those things that have happened to us in the past, and uh, may uh, may uh, bring up some uncomfortable situations. So I'm not going to ask you to do that. But if anybody has some things to add about that, uh, some of the things that they might have done in in a very generic way about uh, about a situation, an uncomfortable situation they faced with, uh, I will certainly give you the mic. Anybody want to do that? Everybody's afraid to do that. Yes, you do. I am not often the offended. I love people. I'm sorry. Love people, love talking to people. So I have no problem going and confronting anyone. In fact, if you have a problem with someone, I'm okay with confronting them for you. (laughs) So, because I am that way, sorry, no, it's not a step at all. Um, We had a brother that, first of all, I think we need to differentiate between being, being offended for ourselves and being offended for God. If someone has done something against God, or if they have just done something against us, I think there's a difference. So we had a brother who, uh, I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing this, because he's um, a very person of what type person, but he decided to, to grow his hair out and wear a ponytail to church. And I thought, you know, I, I read the Bible, I know what it says. And uh, I didn't know how to confront him. And we're close enough that I could have. I could have just said something, but I thought, I, I, you know, we need time. And, and uh, more people were offended by it. I, I learned that we can go past this. 
And so um, we were at an ice cream shop, and my son says, Mom, if so-and-so were here, which bathroom would he go to? And I thought, there's my answer. The next time I saw him, <laughs> we were in the kitchen, and we, we have lunch at church, so we're really close. We do dishes together, and I said, I'm going to ask you a question that my son asked me, and I'm sure many members in church, you know, struggle with this issue that we have. Um, and, and I said it to him, and we all laughed. Now, that, if you need a way to confront someone, God will find a way for you to do it, even if it's through a child. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Tony? You know, I don't know if, how many people know that I always used to wear a wedding band. Um, and I could never find anything in the Bible or anybody convinced me that that was important for my salvation, for my well-being and my Christendom or whatever. So I never took it off. But one time I was teaching at camp a number of years ago, and I love to teach the people in their 20s because these are really the future of the church. And um, I noted, one brother was talking to me later, that why did I have my wedding band on? And I recognized that throughout the whole hour, he didn't, and he didn't listen to a word I said. He was fixated on my ring. And that was enough reason for me to never wear it again because I thought... Teaching God's words and being real in good fellowship with people who this will offend was a lot more important than having me convinced that uh, to remove it. So, you know, do you hear what the brother just said? You hear what he just said? He said the situation with that person was more important than this, than wearing the red ring, than trying to show. So the the very thing that we talked about in in what was a liberty to me. I didn't use it in that situation, right? I with, withheld it because I was more concerned about the brother. I was more concerned about the other person. I put myself in the other person's shoes. And how often do we do that? Or do we say, ah, no, I can do it my own way. I mean, I have every right to do this. And that is the beginning of what? A prideful attitude rather than taking a, a, an attitude of wanting to strengthen our brother and sister. And putting our, ourselves second, esteeming them greater than ourselves. Anybody else have another uh, uh, story they want to share with us? We're getting good now. We're getting. We got into our second one. Come on, let's go. We're ready to go. Anybody else? I have a question. Story. Okay. Well, I've heard people say, you know, in response to something like that, that well, are we enabling a brother? We are keeping our brothers weak by not, by not uh, confronting them and saying, you know. Um, being more forthright with them and saying, you know, really focusing on, you know, this really isn't some people where this is, it's like the Bible says, using that example, um, every man esteems one day above another. Some esteem this and others don't esteem it. And so should we really be, instead of saying, well, I don't want to offend my brother, should I really be trying to get my brother to seek more in the scripture and trying to understand that perhaps, you know, perhaps he's esteeming this day and I'm, I'm, I'm not esteeming it, but that we're both doing it for the Lord. Okay. Anybody want to try to, try to answer that? Because we're getting into some areas now where we, we're, we're into judgment, personal judgment, right? We're trying to be... Uh, a kind of judgmental in a way. Anybody want to make a comment about it? You know, I have to approach people occasionally as a minister uh, and, and have a conversation with them. Uh, and one of the things that seems to be more effective, because obviously we don't want to try to lose the brother or the sister or make a bad situation worse, is, is not to make it personal as much as to to identify the 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 consequences of their actions within the church fellowship or within the body and try to frame it in a positive manner that if I was to have a conversation with Tony, the conversation would be, you know, Tony, think about what you could do and think about the role model that you are and think about the consequences that it might cause. Um, it's because sometimes there are gray areas that, that don't have a real clear-cut answer, but 
the bigger picture becomes the clear answer. It's the more fundamental issues that we need to get to beyond the actual item itself. That's really fundamentally important. What's most important about this situation is that you would come together. Now, don't leave it go. If there's a difference of opinion, share the opinion. Talk about it. Understand what the brother or sister's conviction is about that opinion. Understand and make them hopefully see your side of the side of the point of view too in sharing it. Will you both come to an agreement necessarily? Not so. You may not come to an agreement, but you will certainly understand where each are coming from. And I think that's really important. We, we seldom now take the time to sit down and understand our brother's point of view. And I'm reminded of that because we, we had a time uh, a couple years back where we had a, a brother's meeting and we were talking about some pretty big issues. Big issues. And we get brothers, they stand up and they start talking. And I go, boy, I never knew you felt that way. And I'd get up and I'd talk about my stuff. And they go, oh, brother, I never thought you. Well, how, how well do we know each other then? How well do we know each other? And the faith that we hold so dear. If we're not sharing our faith with each other and we're not talking to each other about it. All right? And then how on earth, if we don't do that, can we uphold our brothers and sisters? How on earth can I uphold my brother and sister? How can I forbear them? How can I do any of those things when I really don't know what their, real, what their faith is, consists of? How well do we know each other? And how much time do we take for each other? Because if we're not taking for our, our time for each other, are we really epitomizing the love that God had for us? Are we? Because if we won't take the time, how much can we love each other? Thank you for coming. <laughs>